Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Michelle Warvell, Communications Director at the Chartered Insurance Institute. In this episode, we are speaking to Tim Smith and Nick Gibbons from BLM, who will be talking to us about GDPR, or General Data Protection Regulation. In this episode of the podcast, we are joined by Tim Smith and Nick Gibbons, partners at BLM. The General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, came into force on the 25th of May 2018 to much fanfare. Ten months into the new regime, we will take stock of how GDPR is, in reality, affecting businesses. At the time that the GDPR and Data Protection Act 2018 came into force, they were heralded as pieces of legislation that would change the way in which we all lived and worked. The prospect of group actions and vast fines, however, has caused great concern. To find out more about this podcast and for useful links, visit thejournal.cii.co.uk slash podcasts. And now here is our conversation with Tim and Nick. Okay, many thanks uh, for joining us today, Tim and Nick, to speak to to CII Radio about GDPR. So I think what I'd like to start with is what's changed since GDPR came into effect? Well, uh, I think, in fact... A lot of it is is as predicted and feared. The number of data breaches notified to the ICO and to individual data subjects has increased dramatically. Notifications are almost invariably taking place within 72 hours, whereas beforehand people tended to brush things under the carpet. Although I think part of part that's partly our experience is partly because we we act for insurers, and I think ordinary businesses are, are still reported as being a bit lax. There has, There's a lot greater consciousness of accountability and record keeping. That was one of the things that insurers were concerned about, the need to keep much better records. And, and I think that is actually happening. There's a growth in trivial but costly claims as as public consciousness grows and ambulance chasing law firms begin to exploit GDPR aggressively. On the other hand, there doesn't seem to be a big public appetite for exercising new portability rights and the right to be forgotten, which was something insurers were also concerned about before GDPR came into force. I think the other thing we're noticing is that because of the uh, much larger number of notifications and insurance claims, um, the benefits of cyber insurance are becoming apparent to a much greater number of businesses but conversely the gaps in the cover they've bought are also becoming clearer. In terms of the ICO's approach to uh, GDPR I think that the question was always was her bark going to be worse than her bite. I think the so far we've 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 seen one big fine of Google in in France but on the numerous data breaches that we're dealing with, the ICO tends to be take quite a, perhaps not relaxed, but quite an easygoing re- approach. I mean, we find that we'll do a preliminary report and quite frequently the, the ICO will then close down um, the incident quite, quite shortly after that. I think that's um, partly down to the fact that, as Nick said, we've got a situation where you know, we're, we're often on board for insurers and that often means we've got an insured or you know, an underlying business who are reasonably savvy. They've gone to the trouble of acquiring cyber cover or a, a cover that um, helps them in a sort of where there's been a breach. So we perhaps might have a, a sort of biased cross section of people that we've got quite good uh, organisations we're dealing with. They're notifying in time, and if you're the ICO and you can see that an organisation's engaged, it's got cover, it's got a team dealing with an incident, they'll 
hopefully take enormous reassurance from that. And they might think, well, actually, given the other things they're dealing with, that's the least of their worries. And they've got the, the big tech companies to deal with. They've got the criminal uh, organizations who are misusing data. And if they can see that you know, from an initial report that something's in hand, then it may well be the case that they can take comfort from that and, and work on the basis that's being dealt with. Is there a danger then that sometimes uh, in insurance, you know, in this market, we might think that we're we're not in the firing line then? You talk about the fact that, you know, you you can be a bit lax or not lax is the wrong word, but too relaxed about what, yeah, what might happen. I think I think one, one that's another thing we are noticing on the incidents we're dealing with since GDPR came into force. Uh, many businesses still haven't implemented effective information security. Uh, they're still using old Windows XP operating systems, which are particularly vulnerable. And a, there's a lot of phishing incidents. There, People still are not cognizant of the fact that if they get a dodgy email and click on it, that could mean their business, that their employer losing hundreds of thousands of pounds. And that happens a lot. And then the, the other thing we notice is that um, perimeter security, the interface between businesses, the things that go wrong when you share information with another business, that's still not properly understood by particularly sort of the smaller and uh, medium-sized businesses. I think, I think multinationals have really got that nailed, but it's, it's the small and medium-sized businesses that have still got to really get on top of that. I suppose one of my questions when you were talking earlier was this obviously this time and expense for companies. Like you say, if you're a big multinational, you've probably got the, the teams in place and the resources. But f like you say, for the smaller firms, that must be a lot harder. It is. But I, th I think there's the, the amount you've got to do in order to make yourself 80 to 90 percent safe, a reasonable standard, isn't that that great. And there are a huge number of service providers offering packaged information security and packaged guidance, penetration testing, all that sort of thing. And I think the reality is that small and medium-sized businesses have got to get on top of it because they're, they're generally part of a group of businesses or part of a supply chain. And what we're finding is that if one one business in a supply chain gets clobbered and causes a loss for other parts of that supply chain then they will get sued and and that costs a lot of money i mean that's sort of instant hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of claims and that's happening quite a lot some of it's sort of slightly cynical in the sense that we sometimes use the analogy of uh, just having a, a sort of normal house if you take the simple steps of getting a burglar alarm having sort of proper looks a sort of beware of the dog sign whatever it might be there are simple things you can do to protect yourself and the bad guys are looking for the easy targets and if you just make yourself that little bit more prickly a little bit harder to get into then you can do quite a lot to um, deter uh, attacks i think the other thing we do see is that there's uh, there's a lot of incidents that are still human error related and again that comes back to that piece of just making sure you've you know, updated people got them trained keep them on the ball and make and, and keep people thinking about information security so those sort of tests that lots of businesses are doing and certainly in the insurance industry with um you know emails coming around uh, and attachments on them and making sure that people are savvy and uh, making sure they're thinking before they click on things those sort of things will up your game to the extent that uh, you know you might might see uh, 
instance reduce in number or size. So all of that thing sort of thing helps. It is getting more and more sophisticated, isn't it? I mean, I'd like to say we've had people come in and sort of test at the CII and test our sort of um, security as well, where they actually try and break you, don't they, in order to sort of like try and and get in just to make sure that you've covered um, all all the bases. I mean, um, you talked earlier, uh, Nick, about the cyber insurance. Um, Does that still feel like a market that's not mature yet and things aren't, you know, like say work needs to be sort of done on that in terms of the cover that people are getting. I think I think it's become much more every day than it was, say, even two or three years ago. I mean, two or three years ago, lots of insurers were still investing loads of money and time in trying to get a piece of that market in anticipation that it was all going to take off. I think GDPR really has had an impact and will have an ongoing impact because partly just because it's it's raised consciousness about data regulation generally, not just information security. And that growth in consciousness has made dealing with data and securing data and moving data around part of everybody's everyday existence in a way that it wasn't before. So I think I think cyber insurance is becoming a bread and butter insurance slowly but surely. There, there's, still, there's still a way to go. There's still a lot of, uh, again, SME type businesses that haven't bought cyber insurance. But I think the market the the insurance offering that and the insurance marketing has become much more sophisticated and much more industry specific and so it's 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 being better sold the covers more more individuated if you like for particular for, for particular types of profession and business and I, so i th- i think it's becoming a, a sort of bread and butter insurance gradually and you mentioned earlier on the ico can you tell me what further guidance they've provided and what sort of good practice looks like yes i i, I mean basically that the ico is is incredibly busy at the moment so there there has there has been um, some guidance published there of course there's the gdpr uh, guide there's a big gdpr guide on on her website um she's published some guidance on legitimate interests on consent but but there's a page on on the on the ICO's website with with a list of all the old individual guidance sort of booklets for things like CCTV and basically there's a there's a there's a sentence at the top saying all this will do for the moment so it's a work in progress I think Tim Tim saw some new guidance last week yeah the um, the ICO has got a fairly sort of active blog so it's always worth keeping up with that I think as a general rule the ICO has always been very uh, engaged the guidance always has been very clear very easy to understand uh, they've tried to help wherever they can their um, helpline used to be fantastic we used to sort of get second opinions every now and then just to sort of make sure we were thinking on the right lines. I think the problem for them now is they're inundated with calls. I think they're getting hundreds and hundreds of calls uh, a week. Uh, there was some new guidance so on the blog, I think, on uh, GP surgeries. There's been a lot of noise around, uh, or sort of particularly from GPs, saying they're getting buried by um, subject access requests, um, often instigated by lawyers who are involved in injury claims. So people rather than uh, just writing a letter saying, can I have my records, please? They'll make a subject access request. And uh, the, the problem for GPs has been they've just been overwhelmed by it. Uh, so there's some nice, simple guidance from the ICO to are they, help them. Are they two different things? Sorry, excuse me. Are they two, are they two different processes then for firms to go through a simple letter as opposed to an official request? Yeah, the beauty of uh, a subject access request is that uh, you don't have to 
pay a, a fee, you're entitled to all your information, and there's a strict time limit to respond. Uh, so there's every prospect that that might produce uh, your rec records much more quickly than uh, would otherwise be the the case. The um, the trouble is that I think everyone's sort of cottoned on to this, so the poor GPs are, are spending a huge amount of time on paperwork. We've also seen it. Uh, the, the guidance is very good for the sort of the straightforward uh, issues. The challenge is that you get some quite complex issues. We've seen sort of disputes arise in the context of uh, children or where the parents have separated and there's disagreements about what's on records and then dealing with subject access requests we've got a mixture of people's data so mum dad kids can be much more difficult so there will still be times when you might need to take uh, take advice but the guidance is a good a good start and that's part of a rolling program i think from the ico of producing sort of identifying topical issues and, and areas of concern and trying to give people a steer so there's some good stuff there without wishing to put ourselves out of a job okay, so you are you asked about what good practice looks like um there was i mean there was a huge amount of publicity prior to gdpr and there were the, there was a there was a sort of chart produced by the ico called the 12 steps and i think basically good practice is is summarized in in those 12 steps i think that the 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 one of the major major changes is accountability good record keeping you've got to keep records of what you do with your data and other people's data coming into your business you've got to make sure that people in your organization at the top are aware of gdpr and its impact I and mean, well that was one of the problems in the old days sort of trying to get boards and senior managers to, to really get to grips with things like information security. It was very difficult, but it's absolutely key under GDPR that the whole business is aware of, of, of what it means and what you have to do. Regularly reviewing your current data processing activities, what you're doing with data, any new projects, do you have to do a, a privacy impact assessment to see, see what the impact of whatever you're going to do with data is going to be. Policies and processes Again, that's, I mean, that, that's been a burden. I think a lot of businesses have actually done that. You know, having, having your processes written down, having internal guidelines about what you've got, got to do, having the right procedures to uh, detect and report and investigate personal data breaches. I mean, because we deal with so many incidents, now we find that there are some businesses which still haven't got an internal procedure for dealing with a, a data breach when it happens. And I mean, just having having a side of A4 setting out what what should happen and who should be contacted and the phone number for your incident response service, that's a good start. If your organization operates internationally, knowing which data protection supervisory authority you come under. Um, some organizations have appointed a data protection officer or equivalent. I mean, it's not mandatory for every business to have one, but it's a good idea to have someone in the business with that hat, that responsibility. And we found we've in our own firm, we've got a data protection officer. I mean, he's the real sort of Superman. He knows absolutely everything. He, uh, he's amazing and and it's it's i think if you haven't got one specifically having a sort if you can you can have a sort of third party consultant to come in it's 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 fantastic I th so i think that's a very good practice gdpr compliant privacy notices i think most people have done that that was that's a that's an easy box to tick identifying the the legal basis for data processing 
you're carrying out, whether whether it's consent or legitimate interest or whatever, that's still something that is I find people are still asking me about. But uh, again, it was it was a sort of hot topic among the the, the people who are interested before okay. GDPR. So I mean, that's that's a, a, I think a, a reasonable summary. Yeah, I think I think there was there was a big mountain to climb before GDPR came into force, and the, a lot of businesses got a, a data protection officer or got a consultant. I think once once that mountain had been climbed, there 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 are and there will be ongoing changes. But having climbed that mountain, I, I think that that's a lot of people have done that. Um, but it's as I said. If you can't, if you if if it's not appropriate to have someone full time, just having someone part time or with that hat on is, I think, essential. Okay, perfect. And how are the courts treating uh, GDPR? Well, at this stage, we're I guess you know, <laughs> lawyer time is different, perhaps to normal time. That we're ten months in, but uh, the courts are still dealing with cases under the old legislation. But that's not to mean that they're not interesting sort of decisions coming out because as Nick said, much as the ICO has said, a lot of the guidance that was in place uh, pre-GDPR is still relevant today. A lot of the decisions will be relevant uh, to cases under GDPR. And also it's it's useful sometimes to get an indication of where the courts are, are coming from. And so we've seen we've seen a few things. We've seen um, the Morrison's class action uh, that's been bootling along. Uh, the interesting thing there was probably the, the finding on vicarious liability. A bit of a, a nasty shock for the TMT market, I think. We're not necessarily always used to dealing with vicarious liability issues, uh, whereas colleagues who deal with casualty sort of live it and breathe it. Mm-hmm. And and, sorry, can you give me a bit of a, an overview to listen yeah. to what that, what that case was about? Absolutely. Yeah. What happened was um, Morrison's had a, an employee who worked in their sort of IT audit, and he had a bit of a, f- a falling out, as it turned out, with uh, Morrison's. And as a result, he downloaded details of their employees' insurance numbers, salaries, and information like that, and dumped it on the uh, the internet. The challenge for Morrison's was they obviously then got uh, got sued. The there were about five thousand people, I think, in the the class action out of about a hundred thousand uh, who were affected. And the the argument was that Morrison's themselves were at fault, and also were in any event vicariously liable for the employee. Interestingly, Morrison's were not found to be um, primarily liable. They had really good systems in place uh, and in some ways that's why the chap who did it got caught uh, they were able to track the movement of the data they had good um, good policies and procedures he was someone who should have had the data for his job it was not widely circulated or available they encrypted when they should so they i think my sort of had a sigh of relief at that stage and thought they were in the clear only to find that the judge then said well you're vicariously liable uh, and that's very much in tune with the kind of decisions we've seen in casualty where doctor carrying out some health screening for Barclays was found uh, Barclays were found to be liable for them uh, Morrison's themselves I think had a petrol pump attendant who punched someone uh, oh there was gosh. a I think there's a sort of well-known case of a Christmas party where the uh, the company's been found vicariously liable for the actions of a senior employee so the I think in the casualty space people have come to accept that it's going to be very hard not to be vicariously liable in those sort of instances. but we haven't seen perhaps so many of those or so many of the arguments run in on the sort of technology and cyber side and it came as a very unwelcome surprise i think because the idea that from an it's only from an underwriting point of view if you can find yourself liable or you're insured liable even though they've done everything they should all the all the information you might seek on policies and procedures and things like that is, is still useful but it, the concern will will be that you can nonetheless find yourself picking up a liability so it was a sort of very 
unwelcome uh, finding in, in that respect. And we've seen the same sort of thing perhaps on quantum, that whilst we haven't had GDPR decisions themselves from the courts on uh, on quantum, the general track on data protection claims and on privacy claims that we've seen coming through, uh, we've seen the phone hacking cases, which have led to very large awards. We've seen uh, the Cliff Richard case with a very large award. And whilst those weren't always pure data protection claims, the overlap in damages for privacy and data protection is fairly significant. So I think claimant firms got terribly excited by those sort of very large awards, whereas in reality, on the, I think on the sort of more mundane's not the right word, but the, the more sort of usual uh, types of case, the, the awards are higher than they used to be, which is obviously a, of concern to the market. But we're not talking those sort of big six-figure sums. We're, I think they've probably tracked from £750 to £3,000. So they've moved from that sort of range to perhaps 2500 to 15,000 say. So it's on an upward curve which is concerning but but not as, uh, as scary as some of the uh, the big awards have made clear. And then I think we've seen a couple of decisions out of the European Court where which pretty much in tune with what we've been seeing before. Uh, I think the general trend has been for the court to take quite a broad approach to what is data and to what is uh, processing and to who is a data controller. So um, a chap in Latvia was found to be a data controller where he'd walked into a police station, um, filled some footage uh, of his interaction with the police and then put it on YouTube. Oh, gosh. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, I think an organisation that had a sort of Facebook fan page were found to be a data controller to the extent that they were processing data. Facebook were as well. Uh, but I think the concern there is just that you can find yourself um, as an SME or as a, even as an individual lumbered with quite sort of draconian obligations because you, you will be classed as a data controller because the what you're doing with the information will be classed as processing and the information itself will be classed as data. I think in the early days in the UK, the courts did resist taking too broad an approach and that was very useful for uh, the insurance market because the, the sort of the more you could exclude from the act, the less you were going to get clobbered by the sanctions if you breached it. And so some early decisions that took quite a narrow approach to what was personal data were very helpful, but the, the, certainly the pattern of recent decisions has been to move away from that, which is not such not such good news. No, I mean you wouldn't expect would you to be you know labelled as a data processor just those actions there. I don't think anybody would. I wasn't aware. No, that's that was pretty tough. I think you no, know, they reversed, they sent it back to this was in Latvia. They sent it back to the the Latvian court to look at some of the issues. One of the things they did flag was that there are a range of exemptions that can apply, and if if he was to be a data controller in that situation, it might well be the case that it would fall under his processing would fall under a journalism. Exemption. So you've got the sort of, again, and it's one of these things that with new technology and new legislation, you you sort of feel your way through it sometimes. And you've got this sort of, I guess, category of citizen journalist now, where people post material that they think is of wider public interest or importance. And it may be that what the courts will do to counterbalance the uh, the broad approach to data control is also to take a broad approach to what constitutes journalistic activity. And they might find a nice compromise there that they can keep their wide interpretation, but spare individuals the uh, the sanctions no that's that seems a bit fairer um and how is the claimant legal market responding and what does this mean for businesses they've got pretty excited unsurprisingly perhaps i think if you look at the wider sort of legal claimant legal market they've taken such a, a clobbering on the casualty side with fixed fees coming in with portals with cfas being stripped out it's it's been a, a tough world for claimant legal market and i think they're probably in the same way as, as Nick was saying, with sort of the level of consciousness about what's 
being done with data and how data is used by companies and the, the prospect that it could be misused uh, has obviously increased dramatically in the last two or three years. And, and you've got all the publicity around the elections and around Facebook and you know, ongoing uh, indications that you know, we've got lots of, uh, lots of material generated on social media that is perhaps uh, questionable. I think it's very much on everybody's mind and, and claimant lawyers are no different. And I think as well with the big breaches, I think with the very high profile breaches involving, say, Facebook or involving Morrison's, involving BA, TSP, um, the recent ones with sort of Marriott, and we've seen big ones in the, the States as well. It's unsurprising that they've they've got quite interested in this. Again, we've got, we've got a piece of legislation that provides for a statutory sort of right to compensation, and wherever you've got a sort of statutory right to compensation, there's an extent to which you've got to expect the uh, the claims to, to follow. The other interesting thing, I guess, from that point of view is that um, you can still get CFAs with... Uh, success fees in privacy claims. So what we're finding is that not only are we seeing more activity from uh, what were historically sort of injury firms, uh, but they also sort of take a, a fairly scattergun approach. They might hit, if you've got a breach, you might be hit with a claim for breach of confidence, misuse of private information, there might be a human rights claim, and then a, a sort of data protection claim built in. And as a defending party, you've got to sort of juggle all of those. So it, it can be quite, uh, that can make it a little bit more challenging. They're quite good at persuading courts to put these onto multi-track so you can avoid uh, sort of no cost regimes or limited cost regimes and judges on the whole seem to accept that i think one of the challenges when you're dealing with four heads of claim like that all of which are, are probably regarded as fairly technical and fairly specialist uh, you might have a, a judge who hasn't dealt with a huge number of them and if that's the case then they're probably very willing to accept that this is of a nature which takes it out of the usual sort of simple process into something a bit more complicated but then you've got a cost regime that's much more friendly towards claimants and we're seeing some very high hourly rates being claimed by claimant lawyers up to sort of 400 pounds in the, the regions which is pretty unusual in in the great scheme of things and what would the average be uh, i think in the average in those areas probably sort of 200 and something also double so yeah yeah very significant again running the same sort of arguments so that you know this is very complicated law um it's complicated sort of process it's uh, of great significance to the claimants because they've had their own very personal rights uh, infringed and, and, and they might have had quite uh, a big impact on the claimants. So we're seeing lots of lots of that sort of uh, argument put forward to justify those rates. We're also seeing um, injury claims built into these sort of breaches, which is extremely unusual without sounding too cynical. I think we, we didn't see many from 2000 to 2018 when there was still data protection legislation in place. But um, since GDPR, we've certainly seen an upward sort of spike in the number of injury claims. So we, effectively what we've got is someone saying, by disclosing my information, you not only upset me, which gives me a right oh, to okay. compensation, but I've been caused a tangible psychiatric injury. Um, and what the claimant firms are good at, I think, is, is identifying experts who may be inclined to sort of be claimant friendly and, uh, and support those, those claims. So it may be that there's a, a fight to be had at some point over those claims because quite often you're dealing with people who've got a whole range of things going on in their life and it's slightly difficult to pin a particular injury on a particular data incident rather than any other sort of activity that may have been going on in that person's uh, life but we're certainly seeing those kind of arguments run and it may just simply reflect that this is well within the comfort zone of the um, the lawyers who are doing this type of work they you know, this is bread and butter to them but it's it's certainly an interesting development considering that we hadn't seen those types of claims or certainly that those numbers of claims in the preceding sort of 20 years despite the fact that the incidents were happening
Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just seems like so this sort of trend coming coming through. They're jumping on the bandwagon. And what types of incident are generating claims? Is there a is there a pattern? I think as Nick said, I mean Nick was saying earlier that uh, we've we've seen quite a lot of phishing incidents. Certainly on the incident response side, yeah, I would I say mean, that's. I think one. I mean, one's got to draw a distinction between insurance claims and legal claims. On the incident response side, I mean, there as as I said earlier, there've been a massive increase in the number of data breach incidents which are reported and in respect of which claims are made against insurance policies and as as i was saying earlier the 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 one of the most common types of incident is phishing and and with frightening consequences because i i don't i don't think a lot of people are conscious of the fact that just one click on a dodgy email can lead very quickly to a three or four hundred thousand pound loss in in you know in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's it's and um, the precautions that one needs to take in order to stop people doing raising consciousness are cost cost virtually nothing. So I think I think in terms of of of, of um, claims against insurance, where the it's the insured that's been the victim of a. Uh, phishing incident that that that's that's probably the most the most common one in terms of legal claims i mean we are we're seeing a huge variety of small claims some of them are sort of ridiculous people claiming in respect of sort of pets who've gone missing because the vet hasn't reported them tim can yeah no i mean we've seen that yeah huge spread i mean obviously you've got everything from the sort of and, and the market scene as well, everything from the Marriott, Starwood, the BAs, the, the TSBs, all the way through to, yeah, we're defending a vet surgery where an animal was chipped and um, someone found it, took it to a surgery and uh, the surgery gave the address of the owner. And so the owners are, are bringing a claim because they, their address shouldn't have been given to, to this person. Um, but they helped them find their pet. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah, there was. <laughs> I think uh, the, the, the backstory was a little bit more complicated because I don't think they returned the pet having been given the uh, ah, address. Okay. So the the owner, well, the pet did make its way home quickly. But yeah, we've seen sort of people in sort of say retail uh, who you know, sort of, someone's a customers come in, um, the person dealing with them has taken a, a shine to them and used the information that they've been able to obtain to make contact on social media. Um, so that sort of frustrating sort of low-level type claim which again for organizations so that can lead to claims against them and their their people do things they shouldn't in some ways this is this just emphasizes what i think we've said for a while is that there's whilst there's a lot of sort of cloak and dagger stuff there is a lot of criminal activity and there's that you've got the sort of real tech hacking piece a lot of this is still people doing things they shouldn't that classic human error bit which is where uh, the insurance market's always lived and breathed um, you know people are going to do daft stuff the Technology simply allows them to do it in different ways or, on, or in a bigger in a bigger scale. So that you know, the I guess the clicking on a phishing email is very similar to just you know leaving the door open. Once you've done it, you you can be in an awful lot of trouble. It's an easy thing to overlook, but it's it's an, uh, something that can lead to fairly severe consequences. And we've seen all kinds of organisations suffer. We've seen schools where they've been targeted at uh, sort of fee paying time. So that if the bad guys can get in, they'll send an email to parents, changing the bank account details. We've seen legal practices, financial services companies targeted in that way. And everyone seems to be a little bit vulnerable. I think when you do those penetration tests, we've seen some results where, particularly in, in sort of 
uh, not-for-profit where um, up to 30% of people have opened the, the attachment if it's been done well. And that can be from the sort of C-suite all the way down and, and the bad guys only need to get in uh, once. So there's a lot of, aside from all the sort of the, the very sophisticated sort of cloak and dagger stuff and, and the tech stuff, so you know, the, the, the B8 might well prove to be sort of quite clever uh, attack or sophisticated attack on the part of the uh, protagonists, but there's a lot of attritional human error where people are just sort of doing the kind of thing which they shouldn't, and, it, and you only have to have your guard down for a moment and um, you know, something can uh, something can go wrong. So, and, and I think that's been borne out. We did a, a survey following a, a recent sort of webinar we did, and uh, I think about nearly two thirds of incidents in people's experience, or two thirds, the majority were human error. Uh, and that would accord with our experience. There's still a, that sophisticated criminal tech bit, but there's there's a whole range of uh, triggers. But often, often it's people. And obviously, this, like we said earlier, this is an absolute minefield. And um, obviously, we're still feeling our way with this a little bit. So, where could um, people go for more information, our listeners? Um, there's a there's a bunch of stuff on our website which would be useful. That's blmlaw.com. Um, we've got documents and uh, materials under our sort of TMT cyber and defamation banners, all of which come into this space. Equally, the ICO, as we said, has got very good material on their website. Um, again, without doing ourselves out of work, there's there's some good stuff there and, and engaging with the regulator is always a good thing. So yeah, do feel free to have a look at our website uh, and you know, the ICO is a good, good backup as well. Perfect. Tim and Nick, uh, thank you so much for coming in today to talk to CII Radio about GDPR. This podcast and others are available, uh, like we said, at thejournal.co.uk slash podcasts. Thank you very much for listening today. Thank you very much. Thank you.